0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name is Ben Miller. I'm a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And my name is Hilemi. I'm a writer and author. Last week, we talked about André Gide, the French writer who developed a politics um, and approach to... Poetry and sensuality and spirituality that came out of some extremely ethically troubling relationships with Algerian and Tunisian boys.
1: Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? Well, Ben, uh, I know for a fact that you're a huge DaBaby fan, right? So... I know that you'll be aware of this track he has uh, called Shug, featuring Nicki Minaj, and I'm sure you can recite her bars um, by heart. But for our listeners, her, her verse starts, Drug Lord Griselda, I Used to Move weight Through Delta. And she's referring to today's subject, La Madrina, the drug lord of the Colombian Medellin cartel, Griselda Blanco Restrepo, the Black Widow. Oh, Wonderful. Griselda Blanco was born in 1943 in Cartagena, on the north coast of Colombia. The nation she was born into was going through a period of relative political peace, or convivencia, between the two parties who'd ruled the country since the foundation of the Republic, the Liberals and the Conservatives. At the same time, the nation had also suffered a a long, difficult relationship with the US, and the US, keen to protect its investments and interests in the country, had intervened in Colombian politics. Yeah, we never do that
0: ever. I don't believe you, Hugh. The United States has never once militarily intervened in Latin America <laughs> in a way that, in a way that led to like horrifying death and, and destruction, and just to help a few people make
1: slightly more money they didn't need. Never once. I mean, I'm on my second episode of the season, and it's already the same subject again, right? Yeah, well, here's a good example. In, in 1928, the Colombian government intervened in this workers' dispute in the town of Santa Marta near Cartagena. Uh, By workers for the US uh, company uh, called the United Fruit Company, that was, and they they bought in the army to massacre the strikers that the US Secretary of State had complained about and called a a communist subversive tendency um, for fear that the US would prevent the export of this lucrative crop.
0: Yeah, I, I assume that it was, uh, you know, the communist subversive tendency wanting things like a minimum wage and, you know, not uh, not being beaten by your boss and all of these things that only um, only uh, gun carrying Leninist Bolshevik Stalinists uh, would ever
1: advocate exactly, for. Exactly, yeah. So the Santa Marta Massacre or the Banana Massacre was this sort of collaboration between the U.S. government, their local political clients, um, the the Colombian government and then U.S. big business that continued and still continues today in Colombia. The U.S. Embassy reported back to the Secretary of State, quote, I have the honor to report that the Bogota representative of the United Fruit Company told me yesterday that the total number of strikers killed by the Colombian government exceeded 1,000. Now they think it's probably more like two thousand. Oh God! A lawyer and aspiring liberal politician, Jorge Eliézer uh campaigned for justice for the massacred, who had, he said, had their bodies thrown into the sea after they died. Uh, Gaytan, well, he sounds
0: like a communist subversive.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, he was he was a liberal, um, a, definitely a liberal politician, but he he sort of yeah intervened afterwards, and he would go on to become a sort of more left-wing leader of the popularity that he gained campaigning for justice for the strikers.
0: Yeah, it actually wasn't until last year, uh, with the election of Gustavo Petro uh, as president, that Colombia ever had its first um, actual left-wing national government.
1: Right. And it's worth remembering that today we think of this term, uh, banana republic, as referring to, it sort of refers now to like an inherently unstable and corrupt country, but it, it emerged um, to describe a country, kind of like Colombia at a time of this large, badly exploited agricultural workforce producing quite often like a single yield of crops for export, like bananas, and that workforce uh, disenfranchised by this local elite who are propped up by foreign intervention in order to keep the price of that crop down. Like a fictionalized version of this massacre actually appears in um, 100, uh, 100 Years Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And um, Eduardo Galeano discusses the history of this whole exploitative relationship between the U.S. military and economic power and the, and the continent in general uh, in his book, The Open Veins of Latin America. So this violent relationship of the exploitation of the continent's natural resources by the U.S. and their political interference in its politics will go on to structure pretty much all of Griselda's life.
0: Yeah, if people want to learn or, or, or learn more about how kind of contemporary conversations about this are going, um, I very, very rarely recommend that anyone read politicians' speeches. Uh, but the speech that Gustavo Petro gave to the most recent UN General Assembly in which he connects this history of U.S. imperialism with the history of the kind of exploitation and degradation of Colombia's natural resources with the history of the drug war. Is a really eloquent piece of political rhetoric and effective, and and um, really puts the stuff together. I think very well. It's worth taking a listen.
1: Hmm. So, so Griselda grew up as part of the nation's poor, and when she was still a child, this tentative convivencia broke. Uh, it was 1948, and so about 20 years after the Santa Marta massacre, and Jorge Gaetan was the leader of the Liberal Party, and he was standing on this platform of land reform, uh, wealth redistribution, and against the oligarchy that controlled the country. And it looked like he would win the presidential election the following year. However, on the 9th of April, he was assassinated in, in Bogotá. Uh, the the uh, motives of the killer and whether he acted alone, that's kind of still unclear. Some people suggest it was a Soviet intervention, others that it was a U.S. intervention. But the assassination led to uh, an immediate sort of popular insurrection in the city, this riot that killed uh, thousands of people, and kick-started a, a period known as La Violencia, a 10-year civil war with the cops, the military, conservatives, and Catholics largely on one side, and... Um, at first, communist paramilitaries and leftists and socialists and unionists on the other. And at first, many of the liberals, this is going to surprise you, Ben, uh, actually sided with the conservatives in an uh, attempt to restore order. Um, but obviously... <gasps> no. Uh, as always, it did them no good, and they were very quickly included in this persecution. And So they actually began to... Wait, form- what? <laughs> yeah. Really? No, come on. So they actually started to form their own... Uh, this sounds like a, a paradox, but they're in liberal guerrilla groups as well, these paramilitary groups. And about 200,000 people are thought to have died in La Violencia, which is about 2% of the country's population at the time. And up to 20% of the population were sort of otherwise displaced or affected by it. And although a bipartisan political solution was found in 1958, um, 10 years later, between the liberals and the conservatives, and the violence obviously didn't stop. And paramilitary groups, death squads, and and foreign support for political violence was to become the norm for the next 50 years. So soon after she was born, Blanco's father left and her mother took her to Medellin, uh, which is Colombia's second largest city. Um, The city's population was exploding as peasants fled the violence of the countryside and into these burgeoning slums that, that filled the slopes that surrounded the city. And so impoverished and with an alcohol addiction, Griselda's mother, Ana Lucia Restrepo, um, turned to sex work. Ana Lucia's boyfriend uh, would start sexually abusing Griselda. And so aged 11, she began her her own criminal career when she helped in the kidnap of a 10-year-old boy from a, a rich family in the city. But when the family failed to pay the ransom for the boy in time, Griselda herself allegedly shot the boy in the head. So as a teenager, she became a pickpocket, and at 16, she ran away from her mother's house to uh, escape um, her mother's abusive boyfriend. And she married a sort of low-level forger called uh, Carlos Trujillo. Now, when I get into talking about the details of her life, these sort of stories, I want you to take everything with an extremely large pinch of salt because I've tried to take the most sort of trustworthy sources for a lot of these dates and relationships and these anecdotes But even those sort of dates and those those specific things often contradict each other and most of our information about Griselda's life actually comes from Griselda herself later. And as we'll learn later, she was very much a, a myth maker in her own right. She liked to tell these stories to sort of about herself. So I've tried to select what seemed the most trustworthy, sort of the most corroborated sources, the things that appear again and again. But by its nature, so much of what we, we know about these cartels is about myth anyway, because they operate through these two things of both like secrecy and fear. And that's something mm-hmm. that's like quite openly, willingly propagated by, by the media and wider culture as well. So yeah, bear that in mind. But she was, she was married to Trujillo, and they had three sons, uh, Uber, Osvaldo, and Nixon, Dixon, sorry. Uh, and the couple then moved to New York, and they moved from forgery to smuggling marijuana. But their marriage wasn't to last. Um, they they split up in 1968. And having um, arrived in Miami to set up these smuggling lines, he he died. He was allegedly murdered, and some people even say that she, he was murdered by by um, by Griselda or an operating on Griselda's say-so, but I also found some suggestions that actually he died of hepatitis, so who knows. Um, Griselda married another smuggler, Alberto Bravo, and they moved to New York where they made connections with organized crime and set up one of the first major drug cartels trafficking large amounts of cocaine into the U.S., Cocaine had actually been falling in popularity throughout the 20th century, but as the 70s began, it started to re-emerge as a drug of choice because it became this high-status sort of thing due to its cost and obviously um, its effects. And this cocaine boom started with anti-communist Cuban exiles who were living in Miami, uh, who had an organized crime gang called La Compañía that started smuggling marijuana using these connections with the American mafia that would, had been sort of forged in pre-revolutionary Havana, where obviously the U.S., mafia had gone to play and then they switched to selling cocaine that they bought from colombia and this huge markup led to this massive explosion in the networks of dealing and smuggling but soon the colombian smugglers um were sort of angry that the cuban dealers were taking such big markups on the coke and often they were failing to pay for it that they began to take over the trade and they band together in these cartels to help sort of share the risk and the cost of their operations And Griselda and Alberto were pioneers alongside Carlos Leda of what was to become known as the Medellin Cartel. Some people say Medellin. I'll say Medellin. Um, And that was later to be taken over by their far more famous successor, Pablo Escobar. But Griselda herself was particularly creative in devising these new ways to smuggle in the coke, especially in these early days. Uh, she actually formed a lingerie company in Medellin, which produced bras and, and lingerie with these secret pockets in which they could hide the drugs. And the industry was booming. and Griselda was making the fortune running drugs, quite often using women as drug, m- drug mules because they were less likely to be stopped. Uh, and these, these, um, these routes were especially going to New York and to Miami. But in 1973, however, the, the Nixon administration formed the DEA, which is a drug enforcement administration, as part of the so called war on drugs. Obviously, we could talk in a lot more depth about the war on drugs and the politics of it and its purpose in terms of, you know, actually controlling the drug supply, profiting from drugs, uh, and suppressing um, political challenges to the US, especially in Latin America, but also domestically within the United States.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's never been a moment um, of the war on drugs that drugs haven't won, right? But that's also never been the point of the war on drugs. It's quite obvious from the Nixon tapes. I mean, this is not a conspiracy theory, right? That um, the original idea was that you could uh, arrest uh, unruly activists uh, for low-level drug stuff uh, and really use that to try to drive a wedge between them and more socially conservative segments of the population and then um, this also turns into an extremely convenient way to direct enormous amounts of uh, military funding, militarized policing, weapons into uh, favored governments, usually extremely, extremely right-wing governments, often um, quasi-fascistic and murderous governments um, in uh, Central Latin America, um, to which they then use you know, somewhat to control the drug trade, but mostly to um, obliterate domestic political opposition. And um, this is an ongoing, this is absolutely an ongoing thing. And um, is really one of the great horrifying injustices of the second half of the 20th century. I mean, just, it's something that, that is terrible for people who are addicted to drugs. It's something that's terrible for people who use drugs but are not addicted to them. It's something that's terrible for people who make drugs. And it's something that's probably the most terrible for all of the people who find themselves in the path of this um, really sort of rapacious, um, violent, militarized, lawless, quote-unquote, law enforcement.
1: Right, yeah. And um, the link between, yeah, like sort of the difference between cartels and political paramilitary death squads, et cetera, et cetera, is often that that difference is extremely fine slash non-existent. And it comes up obviously. One of the big sort of incidents of it being used is in is in uh, Iran Contra during the Reagan years, which even the CIA sort of had to admit in the end happened. Although they said it was kind of like a oops, oh, oops by accident. These all these routes then became used for smuggling drugs to make huge amounts of money. But anyway, to, to give to and
0: let's just say that there are the let's Contras. just say that there are um, there are allegations um, that uh, the CIA may. Potentially profit from elements of this. People have right. alleged that.
1: Yeah, this uh, the, the the famous um, journalist who was covering this was uh, was Gary Webb, who um, who covered this in quite a lot of depth, and ended up you know there was a lot of um, pushback from the, from the US government, but um, he ended up taking his own life after that pushback. Anyway, <clears throat> this is very early on in the days of the war on drugs in uh, seventy, 70 sort of, three. Um, Seventy-four, And uh, amongst the first Of the DEA's operations Was Operation Banshee Which targeted the young Medellin cartel Specifically Um, And in the end 12 of them were convicted of bringing in About 15 million dollars worth of cocaine A week into the US in today's money Although that's absolutely nothing in comparison To Pablo Escobar who was bringing in the equivalent I worked out I think probably about the equivalent Of about about a billion dollars A week at the height of his power Um, Oh boy yeah, he was he was so rich that actually when the the U.S. were trying to extradite him from Colombia, he offered to pay off the entire Colombian national debt in order not to be extradited, which was $10 billion, $10 billion um, at a time. And that is still not even a third of his total uh, wealth. Fucking hell. Yeah. It's just huge, like we'll get into the the figures later, but it just became this absolutely colossal industry in the US and and especially in Colombia. But um, Griselda and Alberto, meanwhile, they actually managed to evade capture in this operation. They 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 returned to Medellin to continue building up the cartel. Griselda was by no means a sort of secondary partner to Alberto in this operation. Like, it seems throughout her life, many many men assumed that they could sort of control or use Griselda, and this was usually a fatal error. In 1975, Griselda realized that the cartel's accounts didn't actually add up, and despite the huge profits they were making, there were still millions of dollars leaking out of the organization, and she realized her husband, Alberto, was taking it. So one evening, she was waiting for Alberto in the parking lot of a nightclub out, uh, in Medellin, in the outskirts of Medellin, and... He arrived to meet her with six of his bodyguards in tow, but she didn't really want to talk to him. Instead, she reached into her ostrich skin boots and pulled out a pistol. Uh, Alberto saw saw her doing it. He pulled out an Uzi, a submachine gun, and in the gunfight that followed, Griselda killed not just Alberto, but all six of his bodyguards, uh, and she escaped with a wound to the abdomen. She continued to build this business and in 1976, the, uh, the year of the US Bicentennial, she actually smuggled six kilos of cocaine into New York Harbor aboard the Gloria, which was a Colombian tall ship that's the official s- flagship of the Colombian Navy that was taking part in a, a celebratory tall ship race for the Bicentennial. Um, she was, yeah, very creative. The DEA managed to track her until 1977, but then they lost, they lost her and actually she'd moved to Miami. Uh, and there she sort of hardened in her ruthlessness, um, located on the tip of Florida with this bustling nightlife scene that stretched back, you know, to Prohibition. And with all these cultural links across the Caribbean and South America, like Miami absolutely boomed off the cocaine trade. And Griselda wa- was key to the growth of this market. Um, the, the ruthlessness of her tactics increased. And uh, as, as Escobar was to emulate later, she invested a lot in firepower, buying these machine guns, assault rifles, trucks, motorbikes. Um, she, she was said to have pioneered the tactic of motorcycle drive-bys with a gunman riding pillion who would pull up next to a victim and shoot him at point blank range. And it's thought that she bought in more than three tons of cocaine a year, bringing in about $80 million a month in income. So this lucrative market, she was very keen, obviously, to see off any potential rivals and competitors. And her cartel had hit the headlines in 1979 because she'd wanted to neutralize the power of this, uh, the operations of this rival drug lord called Germán Jiménez Paneso. So it was July the 11th, 2.30 in the afternoon, middle of the summer, middle of the afternoon, and this white Ford Econoline van, which was branded on the the outside as um, Happy Time Complete Party Supply, pulls into the parking lot of the Dadeland Mall, which is this huge 50-acre 50 cent, 50 shopping center in the um, Miami suburb of Dadeland. And out of this van uh, jumped this team of, of well-armed hitmen. They, ate, they entered the Crown Liquor Store in which uh, Panesso was shopping with his bodyguard, uh, and they sprayed about 50 rounds into the store. Uh, Panesso and his bodyguard fired back, but they were killed in the sh- shootout, and two store, cl- store clerks were um, seriously injured. The hit men then oh, no. jumped back into their van, but then they abandoned it on the other side of the parking lot, and inside, uh, the, you know, the engine was still running. The cops got there. They found two shotguns, three machine guns, five pistols, and uh, a whole bunch of body armor as well. This was like serious business. That's really terrible. Yeah. So the attack, which came to be known as the Deadland Massacre, led to this drug war breaking out in Miami over the following years the crime rate rocketed as cartels battled like literally in the streets for control of this cocaine market in 1980 there were 573 murders in Miami in 1981 it was 621 so for context uh, in 2020 last last year we have the figures for there were 61 murders so it was 10 times what it is at the moment and the city population is actually about you know now is about 25% larger than it was in in, in 1980 um And even now, those 61 murders a a year in Miami are still about double the national murder average. In fact, the killing got so bad that the city morgue was said to have hired a Burger King refrigerated truck to store all the bodies because they were coming in faster than the morgue could process them. Oh, God. Yeah. Drug smuggling became the city's largest industry. It bought in about $12 billion a year, which was more than real estate or tourism. The Miami branch of the Federal Reserve held more cash currency deposits than all the rest of the Federal Reserve branches put together, about $5 billion in cash. Nearly all of it came from the, the cocaine trade. And magazines ran these sort of um, shocking exposés on the effects of the drug trade in Miami and Florida more generally, which compounded the negative effect that this had upon the tourist industry that had already, that, you know, had long time been a sort of key component of the Florida economy. And Time Magazine ran a front page entitled Paradise Lost. In the public imagination, it was becoming something like New York had been in the 1970s, just this sort of hopeless, violent city.
0: Actually, one place that you see some of the sort of cultural evidence of this, and we're going to get really gay here, but is if you watch The Golden Girls, which starts being set in Miami in the late 80s, there's constant references to this as kind of a joke one of the in other words if you're making a sitcom set in miami in the 80s one of the jokes you make is oh yeah there was another you know dangerous thing happening because of this because of the cartels
1: yeah and actually i'm, I'm gonna go on a bit of a diversion here but i i would regard myself as something of a, a florida defender um i think i think i'm kind of duty bound to be so because it's where my boyfriend is from but i do think this this florida man meme is um is kind of In some ways, the result of this is a bit of a scapegoat for actually some of the systemic crises that actually affect all of America. Like, you know, this meme, um, there's this sort of uh, meme, I don't know, there's a game you can do where you like Google your birthday and Florida Man and it like gives you the headline, the Florida Man headline. So mine is like something like Florida Man ticketed after eating pancakes in the middle of an intersection.
0: Yeah, uh, mine is Florida Man steals alligator from golf course, tries teaching it a lesson
1: by throwing it on roof of bar. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Florida, man. But a a lot of what is seen as this sort of like unique, crazy culture of Florida actually comes from these like real material reasons, its development. Like if you look back 100 years um, from this drugs war to the 1880s, it was like one of the least populated states in the US, Um, especially in terms of density. It's big with very few people living there. And even in the 20s, like in the 20s, it's like fewer than a million people living in Florida. And by 1980, that's boomed to like nearly 10 million people. And today there's 22 million people, you know, this is all like enabled by, you know, railways and land reclamation, of course, like by air conditioning. But if the, the rest of the U.S. had grown at the same rate over the past century, its population would be pushing two and a half billion people. Like that's how quickly Florida has grown in the last century. And, and a huge amount of that is also um, internal migration, like people arriving from other states. So it's and actually. The like- out
0: of it is also, is also these different, like the whole history of the development of Florida is a history of scams that then somehow never quite collapse on themselves. Yeah, right. Like, like these real estate you know, scams. Yeah. Someday on this show, we're going to talk about the Miser brothers who built Boca Raton. I don't know if you know that story. <laughs> but
1: uh, Okay, I'll hold just that one.
0: Yes. That's they, yes. The two brothers, one gay, one not, who built boca raton as real estate as real estate scam it's an yeah. amazing story
1: and so like today like even though you know half the state is actually still wetlands or parkland um it's now the eighth most densely populated state which is um, right which is
0: why the, which is why alligators keep crawling out because it's their fucking house and we like drained right. it all and wow. put houses there it, <sighs> yeah, it and should it's, be <laughs> for alligators it's a giant mangrove swamp i mean it's
1: yeah, it's, it's the most populated state um, outside of New York or um, New England. And of course, everyone's crammed around the edges because the center, of, there's, so, there's so much wetland and parkland in the center. And if you combine all this sort of huge demographic growth, this massive boost with obviously like the terrible state of healthcare, of mental healthcare, um, and then this huge drug epidemic in the 80s and then the more recent opioid crisis uh, or opioid epidemic and the the meth epidemic and then a lack of social services that can cope with all this or of welfare that can stop you know an unemployment crisis becoming a life crisis Um, plus the fact you have all these people bringing you know these very different local American cultures into the same place Um, it's no surprising that there's become this like phenomenon of Florida man Plus, oh, I don't yeah. know if you've been to Florida, Ben, but it is hot as hell, 24-7, and it's sticky and there's fucking alligators.
0: This may surprise you, Hugh, but I don't like, I, I, I'm I'm completely happy to and, and accept, um, and also, of course, believe and share your critique of this kind of um, discourse of the Florida man as a way of exporting um, all of these different pathologies of the US into this one particular appendage. Um, And yet at the same time, I also have no interest in going there because I am not a person who does well in high humidity. And, you know, right now in Florida, it's 177 degrees and 200% humidity. (laughs) And it's February.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Every time I've I've, I've just, the only time I've been to Florida is like changing planes in the Miami airport. And you just getting from the plane to the jetway, I am just a puddle of sweat and a pair of glasses just in that one (laughs) a hallway of non-air conditioning that I experience. And that's, you know, that's not fun for me.
1: I don't like that. I'm going to remain a Florida defender. And actually, one of the interesting things actually about it is that, um, you know, probably every state has similar stuff in the US. But one of the reasons you have this this idea of Florida, man, is because um, Florida actually has like extremely and quite unusually strong um, public record laws, which means that any newspaper can get sent and does get sent and can publish and does publish all the mugshots and all the booking reports for any crime that happens in the States, you know, before they even go to trial. So this stuff is just like cheap content that's being put out, you know, like, um, there's yeah. this, there's this really interesting article on the uh, Columbia journalism review where they, they sort of look behind some of the Florida man headlines. And this is, uh, you've probably seen it. There's this very famous one of this guy who's been, um, arrested for like looking into people's cars late at night in a parking lot. And in his mugshot, his like face is like kind of like smeared and tarry in black. Um, he's like like a, like a sort of grease paint and he's got these like cross eyes. And so, and so it went as, I remember it was like a sort of, you know, a Florida man meme. But they go into it and they look, look into who this guy is. And this guy actually served three tours of duty in Iraq. And it was, he was in this unit that was like really really um badly hit he saw most of his friends like die in front of him in iraq and then when he's overseas his mother dies and he can't come home to a funeral and then when he does come back um he like he loses his home he doesn't have a job he's got this like severe ptsd no healthcare, uh and all these sort of arseholes who like beat the drum about how much they love supporting our troops or whatever then just post this guy's story on facebook and laugh at him for being like oh he's florida man he's crazy they're crazy down there Anyway, while she, while she lived there, um, Griselda became the victim to some of those same forces, I mean, especially drug addiction. Um, she sort of broke the number one rule of drug dealing, which is, you know, don't use your own product. And she started consuming the sort of raw paste form of cocaine, um, like coca paste that's known as basuco. And she became mm. increasingly paranoid and, um, you know, well, Floridian, <laughs> basically, having said that, you know, she bought like a gold and emerald encrusted MAC-10. She allegedly bought a pearl necklace that had belonged to Eva Peron to Evita. Oh, um, work! Yeah, no, she was like work. Spend, she was spending this money. She she had a tea set that had belonged to Queen Elizabeth the Work. Um, but she also became like really concerned for her own self image. Um, she she christened herself the godmother because she was obsessed with um the godfather uh, you know the Francis Ford Coppola trilogy and she she married this guy in uh, 1978 called uh, her third husband called Dario Sepulveda and they had a son together and she called her son Michael Corleone Blanco like Michael Corleone obviously is the 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 son of Vito Corleone the godfather
0: wait isn't What happens to Michael Corleone over the course of his life is that he first off doesn't want to get into the business, gets in reluctantly, and then the wages of that is that his wife gets blown up in front of him, and his daughter gets shot at the opera next to him, where he also gets shot, barely escapes with his life, and dies a horrible, lonely death. Yeah, right. His
1: his daughter—that's the life
0: that you want. That's the life that you want for your children.
1: His daughter's played by um, uh, Sophia Coppola, right? And she that sort of like destroyed her acting career. Was this? This suppo- I don't mean it's so bad, but this supposedly terrible death scene on the steps of the opera house. Anyway. Um, but then she
0: ended up making some very good movies.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some great movies. Anyway, um, so, so Griselda then starts to host these big orgies, and um, she starts Work. to invite... Work! Well, wait, <laughs> wait until you hit the end. She starts to invite these strippers, and she forces these strippers to sort of perform oral sex on her at gunpoint okay i'm
0: withdrawing i am withdrawing my work work, sorry i I apologize
1: to everyone i did not have full information it's also alleged and again i'd say like take this with a a handful of salt um but she she is alleged that after she had sex with these women she'd have them executed i don't know if that's true or not
0: i mean how many times can you really do that before you can't do that anymore i mean
1: you know (laughs) She she did have a soft side of course um like hitler she is said to have adored her german shepherd dog but uh, unlike hitler she named her german shepherd dog hitler she named her dog hitler yeah
0: okay i'm retroactively withdrawing all of my works
1: all right
0: not just the last one but the whole every work there's time no there's no work yeah, no. is gone no we're we're, we're out yeah um I am, uh, I am as someone once said about our book uh, not trying to claim that energy
1: yeah I, I i do wonder how many of these stories are true like they're all feasible of course but there is sort of this feedback loop of like glamour and terror going on you know like she loves the godfather she emulates the godfather and now you can you know watch um uh what's she called sophia Vergara she plays her in this like Netflix limited series or Catherine Zeta-Jones plays her on this sort of straight to cable movie. And so this like loop of glamorization of this violence sort of continues and like without getting too pious about it, you know, the the people that she killed were real people. Um, And most of them are not in any way complicit in the cartels, you know, like these shop clerks who were sort of shot at this crown liquor store, or there's this two year old boy who was shot during an attempted hit on his father because the father had like slighted one of her sons. And when this boy dies, she's like, well, now we're equal. Um, She's also thought to be responsible for, you know, about between 200 and 2000 murders directly that she, she she caused obviously not including like all the collateral death and destruction that's just part of how cartels operate which included the murder of her her final husband michael corleone's dad who had taken him back to colombia in an attempt to get him an education without her consent um and actually michael corleone is the only direct member of the family who's still alive for the immediate family he's still alive all her other sons um, have since died in cartel violence um, so
0: much like the God, so actually the the future prophesied by his name came true.
1: Yeah. And uh, yet he's still a, a huge defender of his mother. I watched a few interviews of him. Well, you can't expect people to turn on their parents. No, it's complicated. It
0: but complicated. Her,
1: ruth, her, her ruthlessness was definitely catching up on her. Um, in 1994, she moved to California where one of her sons had become a sort of coke pink kingpin in his own right because she'd made too many enemies i guess in miami and in 1995 she was um, she was caught uh they 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 raided her house when michael colliani was there and they took her to new york to face the original 1975 charges from which she'd she'd fled and she was found guilty and sentenced to 15 years but while she was in prison the public defender then attempted to try her for another 200 murders um but the the case was on the verge of collapsing due to irregularities and eventually she took a plea bargain in 1998 and so in 2004 she was released Um, she had found God in prison and so she returned to Colombia and she sort of lived under the radar in Medellin um, until uh, 2012 but on the 3rd of September in 2012 um, she was visited a, a butcher shop in her in her hometown of Medellin she'd bought $150 worth of meat uh, she said goodbye. She left the butchers. But in the street, she would have heard the skid of motorcycle wheels behind her as these two men on a bike accelerated towards her. And the passenger on the pillion uh, drew, drew a pistol, pointed at her head, and, and, and shot her dead. Uh, exactly the sort of um, assassination that she had pioneered. And as I said, it's, it's difficult to discuss her life uh, without using these sort of dramatic terms and glamorizing it. Um, And in that way, I guess we're, we're complicit on this show as well, to some extent, like her life is interesting, but obviously her victims were, were very real. And in many ways it's, it's difficult to talk about organized crime at all without using these tropes. Um, it's how we, we understand organized crime is, is through the cinematic version of it, but perhaps we should sort of focus less on those sort of films like the Godfather or Goodfellas or whatever, and more on, you know, some more critical interpretations of it, you know, as like, um. Roberto Bellano's book two Six Six six, that sort of looks at the true nature of the violence of the cartels and the scale of this of this violence and what it does. But what we can do, I think, on this podcast is this, this short podcast is kind of put her life into context. Um, I think she was, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, like the fruit of the fruit of this imperialistic economic relationship between the United States and then South and Latin America. Um, she emerged in the violence that was caused by this relationship of intervention and exploitation of raw materials and the impoverishment of the local population um, by the United States. And that doesn't really justify her actions to any extent. But to say that she sort of became complicit in in an attempt to emulate it, in an attempt to emulate that wealth. I think the Dayland Massacre was just one of many in, in which ordinary workers were brutalized in order to maintain this smooth operation of her own exploitative business model, and without getting too Brechtian about it, like what is, what's the crime of robbing a bank compared to the crime of founding a bank? By which I mean, you know, what's the moral difference between her business methods and the Colombian government and United Fruit Company operating as a cartel and murdering striking workers to ensure the smooth operation of their their business? Like one's banana exports, the other's cocaine, but it's, it's all about maintaining those supply chains. So I think one way to maybe go against the grain of glamorizing her as the queen pin is not to see her as this biggest gangster at the head of her cartel, but actually as a very small-scale gangster in a whole world of cartels that have worked to, to bring the, the fruits of South American land and natural resources into the United States market. And the cost of that is, is millions of human lives.
0: Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout-out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, That really does help us um, make the show. It helps us um, take the time that we need to do it. Um, And uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate. If uh, you are interested in uh, joining our Patreon, uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com. There is no special podcast content for Patreon listeners um, nothing is locked behind paywalls. Um, we have some small rewards, but really it's just about uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And um, if that's something that you're able to do, that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate
1: it. Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if, um, if you prefer paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism.
0: Yeah, it's, um, if I say so myself, a fun read. Um, And we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, It's been a real joy to get to tour it. And uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com book. And now on with the show. Well, thanks, Hugh, for telling that story so well. And I especially appreciate how you got it uh, away from that kind of Hollywood um, glamorous cartel violence bullshit uh, place that these stories can so often can so often go to. I think one thing that's really interesting about her life is how much she seems to be really actively co-producing in a way that which I just referred to as Hollywood bullshit, right? As though it were totally outside the lives of these people, when in fact, this is someone who is producing her life very much in this way, or at least producing and manipulating her public image very much in this way, from the name of her child to these stories that she's propagating. And I wonder, like, what, you know, h- how much of the of the categorization as gay here? I think bad is pretty is pretty easy to figure out. But how much of the of the categorization as gay here is coming out of these sort of self aggrandizing or self glamorizing stories? and And can we believe it? Is it like, is it that she is desiring women or is it that telling people that she's holding strippers at gunpoint is a way to assert the same kind of mythic gangster power as the macho man?
1: Right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a super interesting question. I, I kind of reminded actually, and I was reading and writing about this um, of christopher in the, the sopranos and the first three is the sopranos and he's like writing this script um and like the writing the script is some way to like give meaning to his life because he hasn't been you know made a made man yet uh, He he has no sort of role so he he the, the the scripting of of uh of gangster stories is a way that he can sort of like understand himself as having some worth i think like this is like weird thing going on because like i think there's like a Almost like a practical business like uh aspect of producing your own myth, which is that fear uh is the mo- like getting people to do stuff through fear that's not operated on is kind of the the most efficient way. Like if, if if everyone's terrified of you then then you have to kill very few people, right? Yeah. Um uh because the fear is working for you. You know, like people just do what you say because they're scared of you. So how much of what she's doing is actually this like business-like thing of like, yeah, I killed all my husbands. Um That's what happens if you're a man who thinks you can cross me, for example. I don't know. And then whether the sexuality comes into that, like, I think that's perhaps a pretty compelling argument. I mean, who knows? Like, Maybe, maybe she's a, a bisexual who, who does desire women. Maybe she's, she's a lesbian who, who was sort of structurally forced into these heterosexual marriages early on. Who knows? But I, but I think what you're saying, which is that, like, yeah, like this is actually part of the construction of this myth precisely because it's operating off the back of this misogynistic model of, uh, Of a, uh, oh, sorry, this model of like a misogynistic um, uh, heterosexual male gangster who can get the women he wants and do what he wants and is free from consequences is also part of it. Like, yeah, I think that's probably a, a really likely scenario as well.
0: Yeah, and it is really amazing how quickly this all emerged. I mean, uh, maybe with some of the bad gays that we've spoken about in New York City of the '70s contributing to this sudden rise in demand. But I mean, in the in the 1960s, we're talking about like individual people crossing borders with a bag of drugs stuffed in their underpants or something, and then by the by the '70s or '80s, we're talking about what was that a
1: billion dollar a week industry in today's dollars from from Escobar? uh yeah some well that's why words out i don't maybe i got my figures wrong but certainly it was the biggest industry in florida bigger than real estate and yeah, that's that's bigger than real estate in a in a um a country sorry in a state that's sort of um you know uh, expanding by you know like maybe a couple of million people a year and you're still bigger than real estate in that industry
0: it's really unbelievable this this enormous rise in demand and and uh how ineffective yeah. all measures seem to have been at um, stopping it.
1: But I think I think the way to look at that is really that, like, to remove it again from this sort of charismatic uh, myth of the of the gangster and the drug drug smuggler as somehow you know um, folk heroes, and say like these people are just extremely efficient, very ruthless capitalists. That they, they they created a market and all the stuff about them buying the guns and the helicopters and Pablo Esco are buying all this, you know, like having his own, uh, planes and all this sort of stuff. This is people who, who, um, see the gap in the market and capitalize on it as quickly as possible. And then reinvest all that, all that money in the stuff they need to continue growing that market. The guns are there to, you know, for a very practical reason, um, which is not that they live in the wild West, um, it's that they, they, stay, they, 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 their, tools of the trade needed to um, grow and enforce and regulate their their market in the most economically efficient way possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and the the violent response of law enforcement is part of what creates the violence of the cartel. Like it grows, it grows. With one another, and and in only in 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 dialogue with one another,
1: this this ever this ever increasing violence. And if you Um, have if you have this huge market, and you're making a massive profit off it through the exploitation of raw materials in in South America, and that market is then threatened by something else, uh, and in order to remove that threat, you have to um, collude with the police, collude with politicians. and and in the end, maybe kill people, then you do that. And you do that whether your product is cocaine or bananas.
0: Right. This is, I think, a good place to quote a bit from that speech by um, the current leftist president of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, a little bit. Um, it's just a really remarkable piece of political rhetoric. I've rarely seen a politician like that speak so much truth um, in Extremely unfiltered language. So these are just some excerpts. Uh, Quote, while they let the forest burn, while hypocrites chase the plants with poisons to hide the disaster of their own society, they ask us for more and more coal and oil to calm their other addictions of consumption of power of money. What is more poisonous for humanity, cocaine, coal or oil? The dictates of power have ordered that cocaine is the poison and must be persecuted, even if it only causes minimal deaths by overdose, and even more by the mixtures caused by its clandestine dictates, but coal and oil must be protected, even if their use could extinguish the whole of humanity. These are the things of world power, an irrational power which sees in the exuberance of the jungle, in its vitality, the lustful, sinful, and guilty origin of the sadness of their societies, imbued with the unlimited compulsion to have and to consume. Amen. You know, uh, a little bit later here. Um, The war on drugs had lasted 40 years. If we do not correct the course, it will continue for another 40 years, and the United States will see millions more young people die of overdoses from fentanyl, which is not produced in our Latin America. It will see millions of African Americans imprisoned in its private prisons. The African American prisoner will become the business of prison companies. A million more Latin Americans will be murdered. Our waters and our green fields will be filled with blood, and the dream of democracy will die in my America as well as Anglo-Saxon America. Democracy will die where it was born.
1: Yeah, that's a remarkably accurate and poetic summation of the the situation. I think. I think also, and I really
0: do. I mean, th- th- there is, uh, you know, um, not to uh, unduly praise the Biden administration, but one thing they have done is in this election. I mean it's a very very faint praise but like you know they didn't actively intervene in the Colombian election to stop this guy from getting elected um and you know they they made it very clear when Lula won in Brazil that Lula won um I really worry with a with another Trump presidency or a White Wing presidency in the US uh, rhetoric like that is the kind of rhetoric that leads you to suddenly mysteriously kill yourself you know
1: Yeah I guess like uh, um the moral question that raises as well in terms of complicity is 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 that this actually markets of this scale and operations of this scale involve this degree of government intervention and um, across borders like this are actually not really an issue of consumer choice, whether you do or don't take cocaine um, is 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 less the issue as much as organizing politically on a scale that can combat and change um, change these these systems you know and a good example of that i suppose would be something like portugal which is the the removal of the uh, criminalization of the the drug user has actually gone a long way to reducing drug drug use in in total yeah and 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 and, or not just reducing drug use but more importantly harm reduction so that people who do use drugs are used because they want to use them and are as safe as it's possible to be while using them
0: Right, people should be able to understand what they're taking, understand what the risks are, not risk as so many people in the US are risking um, fentanyl being mixed in, which is a direct consequence of the of the um, of the illegalization and clandestinization of these supply chains. Um, People should be able to test anything that they take. And that's all from the user perspective. And then the people who are involved in making these things should be like anyone else involved in making anything um able to live lives of uh, dignity and peace and um and plenty and and all of this is possible uh, it's just what 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 you can't do uh, what you can't get to ever is a world without drugs there is no world without drugs there has no. never been a world without drugs um and the world that we live in now which is a commercialized a globalized world Um, is going to be a world with a commercialized global drug market. And so all there is to do is to to make that, uh, like everything else, um, a series of relationships that are structured in a way that's humane and in the collective interest, as opposed to a series of relationships that are inhumane and structured in the private interest of a vanishingly small number of very wealthy people. So, uh, what are some sources that people could look at, Hugh, if they wanted to learn more about the life of Griselda Blanco?
1: Well, as I said, this is kind of co- cobbled together from a bunch of different news articles, but I've gone for the ones that seem uh, more reputable. Let's say um, less flashy. Uh, so, one is um, "Cocaine Godmother: The Real, the Wild, Real Life Story Behind a Chameleon Drug Queen" by Justin Villejo, which was in the Independent. Griselda Blanco as Gracias por la Coca by uh, Billy Corbin in Vice Magazine Columbia's Cocaine Queen Living in Obscurity When She Was Shot Dead uh, from El País uh, by José Guarnizo Alvarez and the, the Time Magazine article uh, which is uh, worth reading as a historical Artifact is South Florida Trouble in Paradise by James Kelly and there's also an interview with Michael Corleone Blanco on Burner's Round Table on YouTube, which is um, interesting for the sort of historical, the biographical facts it gives, but also worth watching for sort of uh, the vibe of, uh, of the family, I guess.
0: Great. Uh, well, I think that's our show today. Um, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can find it at Bad Gaze Pod. You can find me there at Ben Writes Things.
1: And you can find me at Hugh Lemmy. And until next week, bye. Bye. bye.